Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. tonight about the dynamics of meditation practice and a little bit what we mean by awareness. Um, and I, I thought I'd start with a little story about um, a time when Gotama Buddha uh, leaves a popular walking trail and goes off to find a tree to sit under and uh, proceeds to sit under a tree. And as many of you know, this was, uh, in the literature, supposedly this is uh, one of the places the Buddha really liked to spend time, which is under trees. His earliest memory of childhood is uh, lying under a tree, hearing his parents' voice in the distance. Uh, He did most of his practice under trees. He was awakened under a tree, and he did a lot of his teaching uh, at the foot of a tree. And even in his instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, one of the first thing he says is, you know, one of the um, more conducive places to go and do your sitting practice is at the foot of a tree. And um, it's four days away from summertime, I think. Three? More? Saturday. And uh, so this uh, time of year, living in Ontario, is very conducive for uh, sitting under trees. So he goes and sits under a tree, and meanwhile, there's uh, somebody walking along the path, and they're following the trail of his footsteps, and they look down closely at his trail and look into the pattern of his foot on the sand. And they see in that pattern wheels within wheels, in constellations, in greater constellations, in smaller constellations, and all kinds of incredible patterns. And starts following these footsteps. What could have created these incredible patterns? And so he follows the footsteps until he finds the Buddha sitting under a tree. And so he interrupts the Buddha and um, sits next to him and says, What are you? Are you a god? And the Buddha says, I'm not a god. Are you a deva? No. Are you the earth spirit? No. 
and you know goes through the whole list. Um, and if, if you read the sutta, it's it's wonderful because the list goes on and on. And, on. <laughs> and then his last question is, you know, are you human? And the Buddha responds by saying, um, I would like to be remembered as awakened. As awakened. And this story is where he gets the name Buddha, uh, which means to be awakened or awakened. And in a way, we're taking refuge in this practice in Buddha, which is not a worshipping of Gotama. You don't take refuge in Gotama. You take refuge in Buddha. You take refuge in your own awakened... I don't even want to say your own awakened state, which is how it's usually phrased. Um, But that part in you that is alive, that part of you that is already awake, that is originally you, but not the you that you conceive of as you, but that part of you that is awake and aware. And it's really interesting when we do this sitting practice, how one of the things that really needs to fall away is the hidden and unconscious assumptions we have about what meditation is. And in unraveling our assumptions about what meditation practice is or isn't, we're actually unraveling a lot of self-representations or future-oriented self-imaginings. And actually, this is all the self is. It's an imaginer working with stuff from our past, projecting it out into this impossible future, invisible future. And we miss the inherent awakened um, state. I just said this original self that we all are, this interconnected heart. Or what we've been talking about in the last few weeks, this intimacy, the inherent intimacy of everything. And one of the hidden assumptions that I think most of us are plagued by is that in the meditation practice, we're going to actually attain something. Um, that I'm going to get somewhere. This floor is not thinking that it's going to uh, really become a fine floor for you. The wall is probably not checking itself in the mirror. (laughs) And if it was checking itself in the mirror it wouldn't be such a stable wall because you wouldn't be able to rely on its character because it was constantly checking itself to make sure it was doing a good job for you. And we can't feel this innate stability of awareness when we're constantly in front of the mirror. And the mirror is not just the literal glass and silver, but the way that we move through the world 
with the self as the main reference point. And in doing so, um, we are not moving through the world as, um, the, as the world. We're moving through the world as a me in a mind, in a body, in this um, outside world. And so when we're acknowledging the heart of Buddha nature, you're acknowledging your own capacity for, not your capacity for being awake, but your own awakened capacity. That secure base that I think so many of us lose for whatever reason. And in a way, maybe this is where some of the meditation practice and some of our contemporary forms of psychotherapy really join one another, is how to find, again, our secure base, where there is a kind of trust level that allows us to open to what's actually happening in our life and not move forward in a defended way. And it's interesting, just as we all sit here together and do this practice, how um, the level of reactivity in the mind is so apparent. And when you start this practice, especially for those of you that teach or share this with other people, you know, one of the jobs of a teacher with beginning meditation students is to allow them to really feel the insanity of their reactivity and how exhausting that is, how they can't put their mind to rest and just to hold them in that and to not pull them out of that because that's the motivation for our practice. But what happens is I think a lot of us, we get this idea that the meditation practice is supposed to be peaceful and tranquil and then if it's not, there's this whole metacognition happening during the sitting practice of like what it is we're supposed to get to. And then we're not opening to what's actually happening. Especially if one of the hidden unconscious patterns is a kind of theological commitment or belief system where you're aiming for something that's, you know, unchanging. and um, how this obscures our life. And I always think, like, if you can't just do this in your own self, with your breath and with your body and with the sounds of the streetcar, if you can't see that that streetcar is not a distraction, then how do we enter into relationships with others? It's just like we're taking hold of other people and... You know, turning them into like puppets that we can talk to. Have you ever done this before with somebody? I've had times where like I, I've fallen for somebody who I didn't even like. But because we were both so dumb in the falling, I mean, we had really fallen down. It's like we just turned each other into puppets, you know. 
And then when the puppeteer shows up, that's the end. And behind that whole puppet act, awareness is just operating. And we want so much to turn that awareness into a thing, to name it. And in a way, that's what's happening. The student is asking the Buddha, what are you? I mean, are you a god? No, no, I'm not a god. You know, there's another question he gets asked that's a lot like this. Some of you might know this story, which is, does an enlightened person, well, you've already set up a problem, right? Does an enlightened person die? It's actually phrased, uh, where does an enlightened person go at death? And the Buddha's response is, where is not the appropriate question. When a fire is blown out, does the fire go to the north? Does a fire go to the south? To the east and to the west? Where is not the appropriate question? And in a way, this is a lovely move of handing the question very elegantly back to the student to recognize the assumptions that we have in our practice that influences the practice. And that's one of the reasons why we need this balance of recognizing our original nature, the Dharma, the teachings themselves, which you don't just find in books. You find it under trees. You can find the Dharma in that bird. Suzuki Roshi says, if you hear the blue jay, and you really hear the blue jay, it's not happening outside of you. And then the blue jay will fly right into your heart. Can you feel that when you just stop naming everything, deciding about everything? And then there's kind of an inherent awareness that's left. So these terms like awakening it's not something you get to, but it's a residue. It's what's left when all of the clinging and the craving are relinquished. And how are they relinquished? By recognizing this stability of awareness that's operating behind all this change. But not as a thing or a godhead or something that you have to unite with, but as a kind of natural resource that, that is the, the consciousness before we split things up into subject and object. Otherwise, we take all these terms and we just make a mess of them. Suddenly, the, the arising and passing away of each bird song, or all these letters and sentences and words, or these feelings that move through you during the day, um, we fix them. And then we project, you know, that life and death are something that is going to happen to me. But to see how rebirth is something that's occurring and occurring 
and occurring spontaneously, moment after moment after moment after moment. I was developing a little bit of a cold today. I'm sort of in a very busy time right now. I just came back from Halifax. I'm on my way to Boulder. And um, so um, finally I I got a little bit of rest. And you know what happens when you you rest? You start, oh, the body starts going, oh, rest. (laughs) And um, just to see all the moods that come with the feeling of maybe having a cold or maybe not having a cold. And how to open to these shifts and to shift with them. As we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, not finding oneness, but becoming one with. One with what's flowing in life. The Buddha has a term he uses in teaching meditation, yoniso manasikara. Um, there's so many translations of this. The translation that, that I, I've always liked very much is putting our attention where things are born. Putting our attention where things are born. And so a lot of us think mindfulness practice is like this really slow, lifting the foot, placing the foot. If you're on retreat, you know, it's like peeling garlic. (laughs) Next week, we're doing silent retreat. Uh, Some of you are going to be there, Joanna and Leanne. um, So you do the practice during a silent retreat, you know, in the kitchen and peeling the garlic. And it's so exciting. (laughs) I remember one time on a meditation retreat, uh, halfway through the retreat, the, this is a popular Vipassana one, many of you probably know this, where the instructor says, okay, now take your finger and start to bend it until you get all the way to the end. And you know, after like five days of stillness, this is so cool. <laughs> it's like, whoa, whoa, that's way too fast. Really slow it down. And you see this room full of like 60 people, you know, all like, (laughs) like so, everything becomes so vivid. Everything becomes so vivid. It's amazing. Um, So in our practice, what we're trying to do is to allow the vividness to come forth. We're not trying to turn up the radio station. We're just trying to let the static settle. So you're not turning up the signal, right? You're just letting the signal show a little more because the static is naturally setting. Not trying so much. Um, And then behind the vividness is relaxation. Some of you were here last year when Alan Wallace was here, and he spoke really lovely in lovely terms about this practice of, like, when you really hit a wall, that the first move you should make when you hit a wall in your practice is to relax. 
and, and some of you know this who, who've been on retreat, is on retreat, the vividness gets turned up. Courtney, you just came back from India, mm-hmm. so you probably have this feeling of like the vividness. Yeah. And like, you don't want to come back into Toronto with the vividness <laughs> turned up. <laughs> because you get homeless vividness. You come back into Parkdale after like a 40-day canoe trip, and you know, you get really deep sadness, vividness. Um, your heart is so open. There's so much vividness. And a lot of vividness is not conducive for relationship. So your vividness has to be met with um, relaxation. So when the vividness comes up, it's not, you don't turn away from it, but it's also met with a sense of ease. And I think for many of us who are new to the practice, because there's some effort, when it gets matched with vividness, we get excited about the vividness and we want to turn it up. And this can really lead to a depression and real uh, like post-retreat breakdowns. Where like you're so sensitive that um, you know you, you've opened your living room door and all the homeless people in your neighborhood are sleeping on the floor, you know, and you just came back from retreat and you're cooking for them. And like to also have the wisdom of the vividness and the relaxation. So the quality of your mind and everything you do is being refined, so the awareness can become stable. So the awareness is stable. So that we don't have to find our inner soul and connect it with Brahman. You don't have to find that inner spark and connect it with God. Don't tell anybody this. You don't have to do that in this practice. You don't have to do something that everything's already connected. Yesterday, uh, two days ago, I spent the day on the island just watching the water. And um, it's interesting when you watch waves because it gives you the illusion when you watch water that when a wave is coming into the shore, that that molecule of water you saw 100 feet out is actually the molecule that's breaking on the shore. So I would try, so I was with my son, he's six, and we were, we were trying to do this. So like to watch one particular um, bubble and try and watch it all the way to the shore. And actually what you start to see is the wave moves through the water But that particular liter of water just goes up and down. That particular liter doesn't actually hit the shore in any uh, logical sequential relationship with what the mind and what the eye is seeing. Yeah? And so your karmic patterns are like this. Your habit energies are moving through you in particular conditions. 
And in other conditions, those habit energies don't show up. But we tend to do this with ourselves, right? Like, I'm a depressive. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I hate myself. So if you hate yourself, I hate myself, there has to be an I that hates a self that's mine. So there's like three of you. <laughs> if you're a psychotherapist, this is really confusing. If someone comes in and says, I hate myself, you know, it's hard to know which self to go for. And in the hating yourself, you've created a self. That's, you know, shit. <laughs> and the more you believe that, the more you create a story that makes it feel more real. And this whole thing is this construction that's really fascinating to watch. And then to see how it happens in certain conditions. And then the waves change. They crash, and other waves show up. But there wasn't a pattern that moved through that there, there's, a, there's a, a momentum in the water that connects with another momentum, that connects with another momentum, that connects with another momentum, and appears as waves crashing into the shore. But there is no inherent stable pattern in that movement. But because the mind only wants to see in terms of patterns, because we can't recognize anything without putting it into a pattern, without making information. It's an amazing word, right? Information. It's like, it's already information. And we missed it. But you missed it because it was so close to you. Because it's you. So in our practice, we're opening up to these waves. Flowing through awareness. Your feelings are not flowing through you. Sensations are not flowing through your body. They're flowing through awareness. And what it's like to cultivate that quality of mind um, to the point that you recognize it was already there. It's like trying to cultivate compassion and then to recognize it was just there the whole time. It was actually more a matter of putting something down. You know, putting your load down than making something happen. And then we can start to see the, the depths of life. Just even in one breath, even in one breath is the whole birth and death cycle. Opening to one breath cycle is the whole teaching of impermanence. If you can learn to not hold on and contract around there, then we can really open up to our relationships with everything. To see colonies inside colonies, wheels and wheels, constellations and constellations and constellations. To look into your own colon and to see all the flowers in there. Oh my God. 
I am a garden. And yet, that doesn't belong. That can't be a garden. I mean, when was the last time you've really felt your colon as this vibrant garden? Yeah. I mean, after you take antibiotics, like, you do everything you can to get, like, it planted again. Yeah. So that's not a garden outside you. And when you're connected to gardens, when you have food to eat that is um, healthy, then your own garden also blossoms. It's just the garden eating the garden. You're a flower. But I don't think my colon um, like wonders about itself. Or I don't think a wave in Lake Ontario is thinking about the future. It's just waving. And so can you be Joanna like a wave is waving? Pat being Pat without trying to be meditator Pat. So not creating a spiritual self-image either. Do some of you do this a little bit? Maybe. <laughs> this happens sometimes. It's like you start practicing and then, you know, some of you know this already, you start to have experiences. And then you start to feel like I'm having experiences. <laughs> like the mind comes in right away and you don't see it. I'm having experiences. And so that's why, Buddha, you are original you. The Dharma, these teachings that are in water, in your colon. And Sangha, this community that is your colon. All of these gardens in this room. Well, here we are, gardening together. Yeah? And um, guarantees, when it's done with honesty and good intention, guarantees that this awakening process keeps happening naturally. Because other people in the community are not going to let you be special. If you really you know, are cultivating friendship, they're not going to let you be special. You know, they're going to call you on it. Yesterday I was having a hard time with my son. We were in the alley. He was riding his bike and he, you know, wasn't going around the corner safely. And any second a car could come, you know. And so, oh, we were fighting about it for an hour, you know. Finally I realized, you know, we're fighting about it because, like, I'm the boss, right? And he's, like, the person who has to follow the rules. So I had this idea. The only way to solve this, because it's been going on now for almost two hours is to just go to the park where there's other kids and, you know, they'll tell him to stop biking like that. Cause... So that's what we just rode to the park and then I could relax. <laughs> because the other kids took care of it. And in community, we can't, like, get hierarchical 
or we can't learn together. So our job together is just to flatten it, to flatten, to flatten this tendency to try and get up and above and do like the overview, like as if you could be objective. (laughs) Does anybody do this sometimes like in relationship when you're having a fight with your spouse and you tell them like how you really see things objectively? As if like you could get out of your body. Has anyone done this before? Yeah, you may I may be doing that, but but I can really see your patterns. Freud used to do this, right? He would sit behind the couch on his chair and he would interpret dreams and he was always right. <laughs> and these women in hysteria, which I don't even think we have women in hysteria. Do, are there still women in hysteria? I don't even think we have it anymore. Um, uh, you know, would agree to this. Maybe that's why they were in hysteria. And it seemed like as soon as we got rid of the couch and the therapist started working face to face with the client, hysteria went away. It's kind of interesting. There's a PhD in there somewhere. (laughs) So putting our attention right where things are born. So mindfulness, awareness is not going so slow. It's actually rushing. It's rushing to what's happening. So I would like it in your practice if you could think of your practice as rushing. Like the real kind of rushing. Where as soon as something is arising, you know it's there. You're not in this kind of amnesia or this spaced out, like you recognize the thing once you're like on the floor knocked out. This happened to me one time. I've told the story so many times. I'll tell it again because it's fun to hear the story. I don't even know who's telling the story anymore or who it happened to, but it's a good story. So I I was sitting, practicing meditation. This was in Wisconsin. And uh, I sat through the night. And has anybody here ever done this practice? Common practice? No? Maybe it's not so common. (laughs) You, You sit all night. And uh, you really have to work with hallucinating. Like if you think you've hallucinated before, you should try that practice. And um, so I was sitting and doing, it's called the monk's dance. (laughs) You do this. And then suddenly I started feeling all this pain in my face. And like I felt like my nose was running. And then I opened my eyes and I was on the floor. <laughs> and I had just fallen asleep and just dropped straight down and my nose was bleeding. Yeah. Why didn't I notice that? <laughs> it took me so long. <laughs> so part of what this practice is to see your dead ends. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
And what most of us do is like bad city planning, you put the dead end sign at the dead end. <laughs> right? <laughs> Does anybody do this? You have like some addiction, and it's like you don't recognize it until you're passed out. <laughs> So you're just trying to pull the sign forward so that when you're in the practice and you see that you're not actually practicing, there isn't a kind of choicelessness happening. You're really picking and choosing to put the sign up, to say, picking and choosing, to label it, tired. Or maybe you somehow have like certain tapes you play over. Just see the family tape, the work tape the sex tape, the worry tape, the future tape. Uh, I don't know, you, I won't fill in all your tapes, but those are some popular tapes, <laughs> apparent, apparently. Uh, I just came back from teaching in Dalhousie, and um, we had an exercise where you worked with a partner, and you just made a list together of like your five tapes. Yeah? And then after, there were 50 people in the workshop, we went through the room. Everyone commented, and almost all the lists were the same. Almost everyone had the sim similar tapes that they were playing. Because that's not your stuff. That's also just the culture moving through you, you know. Waves and waves and waves. Colonies and flowers and gardens and circles and mandalas. Life happening. Not identifying. One body, one garden. That ambulance is going to pick you up. That's a police car. That could be you they're coming for. Fire engine. <laughs> That could be you driving that fire engine. One body. And this is community. And you don't have to get some fancy idea of community. In this community, there's no membership. There's no class cards. There's nothing for you to join. You can't get anywhere. None of you are ever going to be certified. Um, there's no teacher training. There's no insurance. Uh, I'm not authorized to do anything, really. And so um, it's flat. It, I always think of this as a collaborative learning community. And so it's like a soap opera. And it's like different stuff happens, but it just stays really flat. So this is, it's open source. There's no brand here, no path. And because of that, we're not in temple and there's not a whole lot of ritual. And so you have a responsibility to practice so that this practice is working for you. And the people closest to you will let you know if it's working. Any questions or comments?
about gardening. What's your name? Joel. Joel. Yeah, this is sort of about gardening, I guess. Um, as a psychotherapist, uh -huh. I'm just wondering how you reconcile sort of uh, the, the no-self sort of concept. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, it's concept's the wrong word. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in psychotherapy, it seems like kind of trying to build like an ego, yeah. ego strength or like yeah. some kind of self or some kind of uh -huh. individual. Yeah. How do you sort of reconcile those, uh -huh. those two things? Well, there used to be a saying that says, you know, you have to be a somebody before you can be a nobody. But I think that's misguided because you don't become a nobody. Yeah? So I think that the healing that's happening in psychotherapy is cultivating enough self-structure that you can forget about it. And I think it's a parallel work to what the artist is doing, is to develop enough form that you forget about the form and you forget you're watching a film. And then there's no separation. And when psychotherapy is going well, there's been enough work together that we forget about ourselves. And a relationship is happening. And in the relationship happening, in that process, there's healing happening. Because it takes two that are not fused, not codependent, Enable, in order to enable one of each of us to be in relationship with each other. And that's what we're trying to do in psychotherapy, and it's what we're trying to do in meditation practice. Or as Dogen says, you know, to study the way is to study the self. And therapy goes wrong when we keep studying the self and studying the self and studying the self and studying the self. For what? Yoga asana goes wrong when you cheap, keep, keep, cheap, when you, when you cheapen the yoga postures by trying to get the next one and get the next one and get the next, that's materialism, which I think Simone talked about a little bit last week. So Dogen says to study the way is to study the self. And then he says to study the self is to forget the self. So this is the second limb of Ashtanga yoga, uh, Svadhyaya, to study the self. But he, and you hear people saying this, my practice right now is I'm studying myself. Well, for what? You're studying yourself to forget yourself. And then Dogen says so beautifully, to forget yourself is to be touched by 10,000 things. But you don't lose yourself. So a, a student um, asks his teacher, um, how do I really enter the way? This is what Dogen's talking about, the way, right? This, your life. How do I really enter my life? And the teacher says, um, do you hear the sound outside the gate? And the student says, yes. So what is the sound outside the gate? And the student says, that's the sound of rain. That's like you saying, that's a streetcar. That's a fire engine. The teacher's not satisfied because that's the separation. Oh, that's a fire engine. There's a me in here. He says, no, 
young people these days always chasing after things. So the student has a beautiful comeback and says, Okay, teacher, how would you say it? Let's go through this again. What's the sound outside the gate? Oh, that's the sound of rain. Oh, young people, always chasing after things. Okay, teacher, how would you say it? And the teacher says, I almost don't lose myself. This is a very subtle teaching. I almost don't lose myself. Because if we say, I become the fire engine, then you'll walk out in the street and be one with the fire engine and you'll get run over. You know? And the teacher is saying, it's not that there is no self, but when you really study what the self is, you find a colon that is a garden. Do you see? And so the teacher says, I almost don't lose myself. Which is saying, I'm not lost in the rain, but it's also not just rain. The raindrop falls into the earth, and it enters the earth, and becomes the earth, and becomes something else. If you, in your relationships with the people close to you, become that person, you lose yourself, your integrity. If you come in this door, and then you leave, and you tell people how you're part of center of gravity, you've ruined it. Because there's no such thing. And so the way we wake up is we use all these forms, but we also are aware of what we're doing with these forms, so that we don't just worship Gotama, but we see how the, the taking refuge in Buddha is pointing back again at you. And in psychotherapy and in meditation practice, they're parallel practices. Because we're using the quality of our relationships as the key to waking up. Yeah. I almost don't lose myself. So you lose yourself and you pull her back again. But you're also not on the other end of like, oh, well, there's a me here, and that's you, and like, keep your distance a bit, you know, because we're so different. And then you make your list of the tapes that dominate your mind, and you realize that we're all struggling with patterns that are not so personal. So putting your attention right where things are born. One more comment, and then we'll call it a night. Question, concern? Okay.
I guess that means we're calling it a night. Let's finish by chanting. <laughs>